This is Champagne Problems, where we come together to explore the gray areas of drinking. This is a judgment-free zone where we can all take a look at how we make decisions about our relationship with alcohol. Welcome back, everybody. We're here today speaking with Dr. Carl Eric Fisher. Dr. Fisher is an addiction psychiatrist and assistant professor of psychiatry at Columbia University and the author of the nonfiction book, The Urge, Our History of Addiction, which is a fascinating read around the origins and cultural history of our current perception and theories around addiction. This book absolutely changed the way I think about addiction and have no doubt will open your eyes as well. Patrick and Sam will be taking the lead on this conversation today, so enjoy, and let's go to Dr. Fisher. So we are here today with Dr. Carl Eric Fisher, author of The Urge, Our History of Addiction. I can't even remember how I came across your book. It was right after it was published. I think I got it in January or February of this year. Does that sound about right, Dr. Fisher? Yeah, it sounds about right. It came out January 25. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I came across your book and and saw the title and immediately ordered it on Amazon and and read it in about a week and um, was blown away by by some of the similarities in in how I think about addiction, um, but was also blown away about some of the history that I was unaware of. I just wanted to welcome you to our podcast today. Thanks Thanks for being here. Thanks so much for having me. It means a lot. Thanks for the the kind words. I'm glad you liked it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I I'll can totally vouch for Patrick hasn't shut up about the book, so he's not <laughs> just like kissing your ass. He's really been excited about this, and nice. I know the hours of prep he's put into like I want to ask him everything. How can I just ask certain questions? So it's legit. <laughs> Nice. Yeah, I don't know how we're gonna fit all this into in a short period of time, but we're <laughs> we're gonna we're gonna go for it. But let's just start off by kind of giving us a little bit about your background and and what drove you to you know your passion around studying addiction and kind of diving into the history of it and why that's important. Yeah, that's exactly right. That it was the pairing of my personal background and the study that led to the book because it was the book that I wanted myself in early recovery. Uh, It's a book that I thought I needed when I was feeling relatively safe and not like I was going to relapse that day. Uh, But I still had big questions about addiction. And we could talk more about it, but the nutshell version is that I, I went to medical school and then psychiatric residency at Columbia University in New York and was putting on this false front of being a real high performer all these academic accolades and awards and went on to a a prestigious residency. But at the same time, I was hiding really uh, dangerous alcohol use and then later stimulant use in the form of Adderall and then later cocaine. And it just kept on accelerating and accelerating and accelerating during my intern year, the first year after medical school, to the point that I was coming in late and like waking up hungover and... uh, groggy on the floor of my hallway outside my apartment and hiding it from all my supervisors who I'd known for years and who were really compassionate and trying to help me. Um, All that culminated in me going to sort of a specialized rehab for doctors after I had had a really catastrophic manic episode that was fueled by alcohol and cocaine and Adderall. And 
after that, I got to go to a specialized program for doctors where there's urine monitoring and specialized treatment and all the rest. I was really grateful for it. And I was really grateful for all the academic and medical and scientific investigations of addiction. But I found, and this is where the book comes in, I found I still had this question that I didn't really understand what had gone wrong with me. I was still wondering, like, what had actually happened to me? And also what happened to my parents, because both of them were alcoholics. Yeah. And so, I, you know, I really got a lot out of those academic and medical and scientific explorations, but I felt like it was also incomplete. Like there was something more from the philosophy and the culture and the history. And I wanted a book that had a sort of overarching synthetic view of addiction throughout the ages. And I, it wasn't out there. So I, I started doing it and I just tried to write it myself. Yeah, and without giving away, you know, all the nuggets in the book, because I want everybody to read it, what were some of the big surprises in terms of culture and history of alcohol use, you know, that you wrote about in your book? Yeah, sure. The first one that comes to mind in thinking about the big picture, long-term, hundreds upon hundreds of years history is this idea that we've had drug epidemics uh, for as long as we've had modern society, basically, we've had epidemic after epidemic after epidemic going back at least 500 years uh, that we're in the middle of this awful opioid overdose epidemic. And it really is something special. And it really is causing historic levels of suffering and death right now. And simultaneously, it's nothing new. It's nothing new because we've had epidemics for hundreds of years. And like you just said, some of the earliest ones were alcohol. Going back to the 1720s, for example, in the United Kingdom, there were all these complicated causes and conditions that came together, making gin a really powerful epidemic in urban London, where all of a sudden it was cheap, and all of a sudden there were these powerful industries, these distilling industries that were pushing their product and also hiring uh, advocates and writers to sort of downplay the dangers of their drugs. Uh, and we've had, we've had successive alcohol epidemics. The early uh, American Republic around the time of the American Revolution and afterward had a massive alcohol epidemic. Uh, so we just, that, that's the first big surprise. And then seeing those epidemics throughout history was really instructive in the core question that I came into it with because I wasn't, I wasn't interested as much in sort of like the policy level. I wasn't, I wasn't thinking about like what is the right law yep. to pass or it was more about me. It was about, you know, how do we make sense of alcohol? How do we make sense of alcoholism? How do we make sense of addiction? And the interesting thing about those epidemics is in the societal response to those epidemics, we can see reflected the, the understanding. We can see the sort of governing image of how people thought about addiction at the time and how it changed over time. What about when it comes to like prohibition? I know you addressed that a little bit and spoke to it. What do you think it is about alcohol that, that kind of led to us having to do that? Sure. Yeah. I mean, there's capital P prohibition, which is the constitutional amendment and the, you know, the sort of like Bugsy Siegel kind of like gangsters in the 1920s. I don't even know if that was Bugsy <laughs> sounds Siegel. Right. Maybe. Sounds, sounds um, right. I think yeah. it was Al Capone. Yeah, yeah. Is it Bugsy? I don't know. Is it any, maybe like a... A gangster aficionado will will write in to tell me that I was wrong. But uh, the the capital P prohibition was, you know, 1920s constitutional amendment. Uh, and then there's lowercase p prohibition, which is all of the efforts to try to stamp out yeah. drugs, including alcohol, 
through crackdowns, through outlawing it, through legislation. And that's gone on forever. That's gone on. Like the first uh, major drug epidemic in the modern era, I found, was tobacco. Right after Christopher Columbus went to North America, he brought back tobacco leaf. And that was an epidemic. That was one of my like favorite stories in, in your book, which... <laughs> How that came about that was really cool in north carolina there's this like very intimate connection with the tobacco too so maybe you had some some resonance with that Deep i roots. had some resonance with tobacco because both of my parents smoked heavily and and tobacco is also the drug that uh that is going to kill both of them like my mother died of uh tobacco related cancer when my father dies it'll definitely be uh at least in part related to um emphysema to chronic obstructive pulmonary disease and and so tobacco yeah we tend to discount tobacco a little bit but it, it really is a major killer in the united states and abroad so anyway i mean like it was shocking to see how far back tobacco went and um about prohibition uh as tobacco spread across both europe and asia all the way out to mongolia and japan and um governments at first kind of celebrated it as this sort of arist aristocratic uh special preparation and then as soon as uh, it kind of worked its way down the social ladder uh, they try to stamp it out to the point where uh, you know some of the prohibitionary measures were things like cutting off noses or seizing all of your property if you use tobacco yes. or just straight up death or just the death penalty uh, and you know back then and ever since prohibition by itself has never been enough to deal with the drug crisis. We see that over and over again. If it's just about crackdowns, all it's going to do is create more harms and it doesn't actually stop people from using drugs. It's fascinating. Why do you think alcohol specifically has kind of gone through all these stages of like, maybe there's a little bit of recognition of all of the kind of harmful effects. And then like, it always seems to come back and we always seem to find a way to make it okay do you have any kind of thoughts on why specifically with alcohol yeah definitely um and people struggle with this because it's been apparent for a long time that we've gone through cycles about alcohol yeah. that's one of the big themes of the book is with addiction in general we've gone through these cycles and it rhymes over and over again and stuff happening in the 18th century and the 19th century is just like what's happening today across different substances and across different problems. But alcohol is one of the oldest. You know, one of the answers is that uh, we've had alcohol for thousands of years, all the way back to, say, like Mesopotamia. And also it was used, uh, you know, it was used as part of positive cultural celebrations and part of mm -hmm. like normal healthy life for people who don't have a, mm -hmm. a drug problem or a drinking problem. Uh, and also it was used to stifle pain and suffering, like Mesopotamian soldiers being paid in beer rations. Uh, and there's always been a lot of money in alcohol. Like I was mentioning about the gin craze for <laughs> at least, I mean, it was the 1720s. So we're talking about 300 years now. There have been these really powerful industries uh, that scholars have called addiction supply industries that have a huge stake in not only um uh, manufacturing and distributing their products, but also really powerfully influencing how people think about drugs and how people think about addiction. So there's been sort of a seesaw effect with alcohol where at times it's been like the pendulum has swung all the way over to like total villainization. Uh, and then it swings back to yeah. um, 
not in the political sense, but like liberalization, just we're very loose about alcohol. Alcohol taxes are very low. It's very socially acceptable. And a lot of people would argue that's where we are today. You know, there's especially with the pandemic, a lot of talk about like, oh, it's wine o'clock and uh, mommy needs mm -hmm. her wine or, you know, let's let's hop on a <laughs> Zoom happy hour. And uh, sure enough, you know, rates of alcohol related problems, including liver problems, really skyrocketed uh, during the pandemic. We're getting more and more good data now because science takes a while now that we're a couple of years out from the start of the pandemic. Uh, so, you know, alcohol is one of our most complex. It's like woven into the DNA of our culture in a way. Yeah. It's so interesting, too, to be able to see that cycle on such a small scale. Like I can even recognize it of like drinking patterns during the holidays to a completely dry January to kind of going back to normal. Like there's like this oh, this is bad. I need to kind of clean it out. I need to detox. I need to step away from, and I'm going to do that really rigidly for 30 days. And then I'm going to forget all of that <laughs> and kind of discount all of the benefits that I recognized, verbalized all of that. And I'm going to go back to doing this thing. And it, it always shocks me the way we're able to turn off or turn on kind of what applies to what we want right now. And I'm, I'm curious for you having look, I mean, done this extensive research and experienced some of this yourself. What's from your perspective, what's, what's most shocking that society rejects or fails to acknowledge around alcohol? I don't know that society rejects it because there are a lot of powerful forces that conceal this fact, but the power yeah. of alcohol industries today uh, is really underrecognized, and there were some really interesting ways that history rhymed I, over and over again. But the, the place I I kind of pulled out the parallelism is between the 1930s, 1940s, and today. So back in the 1930s, 1940s, that's when prohibition was repealed, and alcohol industries had a they still had an uphill battle. Uh, they you know, they, even though alcohol was legal again, there was a huge portion of the population that thought alcohol was demon rum. And we, you know, at the very least, we should suppress it as much as possible. And there was a lot of anti-alcohol education and messaging out there, probably too much uh, and probably too simplistic. Uh, and then one of the ways that those industries kind of push the pendulum back in the other direction is they, they took the problem and they made the problem not about the substance, but about the person. So they use the idea of alcoholism and alcohol problems to kind of uh, de-emphasize the product, meaning they said, you know, an alcohol problem is really just bad people or people at least acting irresponsibly. And that's so strong in American culture, you know, this focus on like self-discipline and a self-made man and mm -hmm. even stuff about dry January. Sometimes it's healthy and it can be sort of like a laboratory for investigating yourself. Um, but sometimes it's just yeah. like this individualistic project of self-discipline, like I'm going to whip myself into shape. And I mean, I identify mm -hmm. with that so much. Right before I had my big addiction crisis, I did a sober October uh, and I had a chart that I put up on my wall. <laughs> and I, I went to hot yoga every day and I meditated every day and I ate perfectly vegetarian and I got eight hours of sleep and I was check, 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 check. And I did it perfectly. And then Bender November, I literally mm. called it Bender November. And that's the thing <laughs> that put me in the psych ward. Uh, and the, one of the things that I was really missing was that it's not just an individualistic project. It's not just all on my shoulders to just figure it out myself. Uh, some people have vulnerabilities to 
severe substance problems. I'm one of them, and I needed to be more careful about it. I'm really curious to know what you think addiction really is. I have this like idea that it's kind of correlated with the human condition in some sense, and that was one of the things that kind of drew me to your book that I kind of felt and, and got out of your message was the, like, the holistic side of it. So can you speak on that a little bit and kind of give us an idea of what your working definition of addiction is? Yeah, definitely. And yeah, I I agree with keeping the disease stuff separate because in a way that can be sort of a distraction. It's messy because different people have different ideas about what disease even means. Uh Uh, And the advantage of the historical approach for me is it brought me back to what people have thought about addiction in ancient philosophy and then also it was really instructive when I saw how addiction, the word, got its way into the English language. And the upshot is I think addiction exists in all of us. I don't think that addiction is some neatly demarcated uh, problem that only some people have. Uh, certainly there are different levels of severity, and there's also a sense of group identification and fellowship that I get out of being a person in recovery from addiction. Uh, and, you know, that's the sort of thing that you see in mutual help meetings that people uh, get a sense of identification and, and clarity with others. And I think that's real and I think that's true. And at the same time, I think it's a matter of degree and not kind. It's not that we're totally separate yeah. from the rest of the population. Because what I've seen in general psychiatry with all my patients uh, and also through the, the history going back to Aristotle and the Buddha and otherwise is that it's everybody struggles with self-control. Everybody struggles with trying to discipline themselves and bring their actions in line with their intentions. Uh, And uh, that's the mystery. That's the mystery at the heart of addiction. The the why of like, why do people keep on using or why do people keep on doing the thing despite the urge to stop or despite the intention to stop? That that was really at the core of, for example, St. Augustine's philosophy at the start of the Christian church. Um, I mentioned Aristotle and the Buddha. For all these people, it was not the sense that like there are some sick people over here who have trouble controlling themselves. They recognize that everybody has these these everyday um, problems of self-control. Uh, and so, you know, addiction, if you have to put a name on addiction or put a label or a definition on it, I would say it's a it's a devotion that leads to problems with control or a sense of powerlessness because that's the way that people use the word when it first entered the english language around the time of shakespeare 500 years ago it wasn't um it wasn't like a status that happened to you it was an action that you engaged in and as you engaged in it uh lost control you lost power but it was on a it was on a spectrum there were gray areas it wasn't like a total dichotomy between totally free choice over on one end and being a totally hijacked zombie over on the other end. Yeah, and I feel that's kind of where we get lost a lot of times. How do you feel like we can address kind of, you know, people that may not meet criteria for a moderate or severe substance use disorder? What do you think is the best way to engage or present information like this to them so it's, you know, the most effective? Yeah, it's such a great question. People have struggled with it since the 70s and 80s. That's part of the reason I wrote about some huge controversies in addiction research in the 70s. uh, Because we had 
and we, by we, I mean like the medical and scientific field, by that point had inherited some ideas about that sort of us them distinction between like people with addiction and the rest of supposedly normal and healthy people. And so when we got good research around that time that said there's this vast spectrum in between and it's possible to have mild substance use problems and it's Mm -hmm. possible to have moderate substance use problems and some people do need abstinence and some people do need really intensive treatment, but other people seem to just stop on their own or some people take other pathways to recovery. Uh, when all that research first started uh, coming out, there were massive controversies because the people who were really attached to these old ideas of the us, them uh, felt threatened by it. They felt it threatened their notions of what addiction was. Uh, and so that's a, a huge story. And I, I mean, I won't, <laughs> yeah. we can talk more about we that. Go down that rabbit hole. <laughs> so I don't yeah. want to get too far down the rabbit hole, yeah, but that's yeah. just to sort of like set up the answer to your question. Which is, what do we do about these people who, this is something we see a lot in general psychiatry practice and in my practice where, you know, somebody doesn't necessarily meet like the full criteria for severe substance use disorder, but then um, they still are struggling and they still want help. They still have this sense that like there's something that's not quite right with the way I'm approaching drug use, including drinking. Uh, I don't feel like I need to go to rehab, but what do I do? Some of those researchers, the Sobel's, um, called folks like that the underserved majority. Yeah. Because numerically, that's the majority of people who have some sort of substance problem. Right. And our, our whole substance use disorder treatment system is set up for that minority that has really severe problems. And I'm glad pe- like people like me. And I'm glad people like me have intensive treatments, but we, need, we just need more um, education and treatment about exactly what we're talking about, that there does exist, this spectrum in between. And we just need to be better set up as a society to help people... I describe in the book a lot of um, a lot of psychotherapists, a lot of general medical practitioners. They feel like substance problems are so severe and so intense that they have to send them down the street to some specialized clinic. Uh, I describe the story in my book about I uh, once I went to rehab and I came back to psychiatry training at Columbia. We do these intakes to accept people into our sort of budding psychiatry practices. And this one guy came in who was drinking like five drinks a night. He was kind of struggling. He seemed motivated. He wanted help. Uh, so on all those grounds, he was healthier than I was when I was at my worst. But then my supervisor said, ah, he's, he's not right for us. We got to send him somewhere else. And so they sent him down the street to the specialized clinic. And that's um, that's structural stigma. You know, it's not it's not that she was a bad person because she was actually a very thoughtful, well-meaning and I know very kind and um, just excellent psychiatrist. It's it's just that the the psychiatric profession in this case inherited this idea, substance use problems or something special. Mm-hmm. So that I mean that, I think it's just one wrinkle of it, but it, it's ultimately coming back to consciousness raising. It's having a greater awareness of the fact that there are these these tough calls, these tough places in between where uh, people can really struggle without necessarily. Um, falling into the kind of severe addiction that, you know, is most common in the, the public imagination. It's really tough, too, in the clinical world, at least, to have confidence in being able to treat that. Like, just a lot of what I see, I had a supervisee this morning saying, like, I've got this guy, he needs to cut back on drinking. I believe he has a severe substance use disorder. And, you know, his goals with drinking don't match what I would say needs to happen. And 
you know, he wants to start drinking less. And she's like, and when he won't go to AA because he doesn't want an abstinence-based program or sponsor saying you're screwing up. Like, I don't know where else to send him for community support, for fellowship, for um, a, a support network to tackle this. And so it's like, even the clinician is like, I don't know what to do with this. And I don't know how to treat this because my discomfort comes up in how much is too much? How do I help someone with harm reduction? How do I help them manage their use? How, and so it's like always going back to the numbers of like, you know, there's low risk versus high risk. Like there are kind of numbers around this that scientifically or medically we know um, prevent someone from getting into a kind of high risk range, but there's this real lack of competence and confidence I think where I say we're getting these clients like a psychotherapy practice is getting these clients they're going Sam can you take him Mm. because I am comfortable working with let's see if we can set some parameters around it and meet it and if we can't let's adjust then and reassess and continue assessing what's kind of going on and there's nowhere really that I've found to send my clinicians or supervisees to go and get trained on how to do this because it feels so new to everyone because it's severe substance use disorder, IOP all the way up to residential or, or, or you're normal and no, not at all, you know, and just knowing anyways, I'll stop rambling, but I think that's, this is really where I, you know, see everyone gets stuck and there's such a lack of access for, like you said, the majority um, of who needs to be treated in some form. I totally agree. And I, I've felt that sort of feeling of um, loss or at least an absence of the kind of supports I would want for someone in that place. You know, there's sometimes this group therapy that is has more of a, a motivational approach and at least in New York City and some of the major areas, you know, sometimes you'll get like a group that's more about people who are curious and then a group that's more explicitly abstinence folks. And that, that can be helpful, but that's all within medicine. And I, you know, one of the, uh, one of the big issues uh, about addiction as a societal phenomenon is this notion of despair. This notion that addiction epidemics throughout history, but especially today have been associated with alienation, isolation, loneliness, lack of access to meaningful work uh, that was present in the gin craze that I was talking about before, but it's definitely a big factor in what is going on right now. There are more people living alone than at any time in human history and the pandemic, even though things are starting to get safer and people are coming together, it's disrupted a lot of our social networks. And I think some of those networks that people would rely on for uh, what people call recovery capital, uh, those sorts of like, broader life supports that help people in their recovery we're not necessarily recovery specific it would be like a bowling league yeah but now Mm -hmm. we don't have that as much Mm -hmm. anymore in american life and it could be hard as a clinician to sit in that space Uh, and it could be hard as an individual trying to find recovery to sit in that space where it's like what do i do i've seen that so many times with people in recovery they're they you know they start making positive changes they're like what do i do with my life like where do i go Mm -hmm. like i don't think i'm gonna and that was a big part of what where i was in those first years of my recovery where I started working on the book, I thought, you know, I'm not going to die. 
I'm not going to relapse tomorrow necessarily. I mean, I want to be humble about it, but I feel okay. But the bigger question is like, what does recovery mean to me? And like, what am I doing with my life? And where do I go for mm-hmm. support and meaning and purpose in my life? And I don't know that we can solve that as a, as medical professionals in a lot of those cases. I feel like there's so many people and I'm not being judgmental here. I'm just like, I feel like there's so many people in our society there that are addicted to alcohol, but it's not necessarily, it can't necessarily meet criteria for a disorder because the external consequences don't stack up. Mm -hmm. Can you speak on that at all from like a, a medical perspective or even like a cultural perspective? Yeah, and again, it gets back to the question of what do you mean by addiction? So I really yeah. like the sense of loss of control or powerlessness yeah. or what Aristotle called weakness of will mm-hmm. as one of the central defining criteria for what we call addiction. And what that means is that somebody themselves feels like they are having trouble controlling themselves. Yeah, and That's really what the original Alcoholics Anonymous founders described, and that's, that's why mm-hmm. I went to the original AA history in my book, is, um, yeah. you know, it wasn't a program for people to get court-mandated to if they had a DUI. It was a program for people who were, um, who were struggling and looking for help and really trying and then not being able to change on their own. Yeah. That, that's yeah. a lot different than, say, even necessarily a severe substance use disorder because a severe substance use disorder in the medical sense can also be a diagnosis made from the outside. Mm-hmm. Somebody could look at someone and say, you have very severe consequences. And we see those folks in emergency rooms all the time. You know, people who they might have like 200, 300 admissions to an ER a year, but they say, I don't have a problem. I just want to drink. Yeah. My life is so shitty. I, mm-hmm. You know, fuck it. I'll just drink. You know, your question is, like, what do you do with people who seem to be having a problem, but then they don't accept that they have a problem? Yeah, I mean, that to to an extent, but I guess it kind of ties into my second question about, like, the disease model of addiction. Like, I think originally that idea was to destigmatize addiction or any kind of substance use issue to the point where people would seek help and i guess i feel like now it almost perpetuates the stigma to some degree because people you know they still drink they don't have these negative consequences they don't think that they have a disease or don't want to admit that they have a disease but the consequences from their drinking may be you know they're not meeting their full potential or it's stopping them from being you know the best human or or family member or whatever and we don't see that because it's so normalized in our culture it's all a lot man addiction's a lot this <laughs> is all it's a lot to look across um medicine society culture economics and all this so it's a uh, you know I, I struggle with this all the time i certainly don't have the answers and by the way you know i wrote the book to try to come up when i started off i wanted like the definitive answer and one of the great gifts of the book was mm-hmm. Uh, getting a little more humble about it, which is part of why I wove in my personal story. And I thought, geez, I don't know. I don't know, but I can at least say the best that I've been able to figure out for myself on my own path with my own biases and background and legacy and all the rest. Yeah, to your question, I mean, I I don't know ultimately who hel- who gets helped and who gets hurt by the disease concept but i do know for sure it's a double-edged sword mm-hmm. uh, i've seen people even nowadays who seem to have been helped by the disease label um i saw david chef at an american society of addiction medicine conference who um 
he wrote Beautiful Boy and yeah. a bunch of other books, including Clean. His son struggled with meth addiction. And for him, the notion of disease as a very specific sort of like hyper reductionistic description was really helpful for him as somebody who is relatively medicine naive, who is struggling with getting compassion for his um, son. And like Beth Macy, who I've gotten to know a bit since the uh, since I published my book, um, it has done a lot of really interesting reporting uh, next to you guys down um, in Virginia, especially because she's Roanoke based and um, has seen people out in the field like harm reduction advocates and other advocates who have used the notion of disease to summon up compassion. Sure. Um, and to say that, you know, we should be providing services and we should be more compassionate to people with addiction problems. Um, but I, I, I agree with you that I think it's also harmful in some ways that the notion of disease nowadays um, has been used a lot to um, imply sort of, a sort of fatalism to say that people with addiction don't mm -hmm. have choice, that people are hijacked, they couldn't do otherwise. I think it's dehumanizing, basically. Yeah. And we, do, we don't even have, I mean, we do have um, research uh, suggesting that the, the those really sort of stark descriptions of disease, uh, on average, um, promote um, pessimism in people who don't mm. have substance problems. It makes them, uh, it prompts them toward more stigma and social distance. And in people who do have substance problems, it makes them possibly even more likely to relapse because they've uh, perhaps they've lost faith in their own agency and their own ability to change on their own. So I try to be really careful about disease. I think the bottom line is that we just have to um, get clear on what it means because in some people's mouths, yeah. and like I described, like Benjamin yeah. Rush at the start of the um, American Revolution, uh, he's one of the first people to use the notion of disease, but all he said was, oh, this means that it's something for the medical profession to help with. That's it, that's a very low bar for disease. Yeah. That just means I like, that, like that. We're, we're among yeah. the people who could help out a little bit. Um, and that's a way better definition of disease than, for example, saying medicine is the best way. Biology is the best solution. Uh, we, you know, we should put all our faith in. And people have absolutely made those claims as well. Yeah, the powerlessness, too, I, I think really speaks volumes of like, if it's a disease, I just can't control it. I got nothing to do with it. Like, this is a change that has occurred in my brain. And, well, you know, now a pickle, never to be a cucumber again. Mm -hmm. Like, that's just where we're at. And how powerless that can feel and like why would I seek treatment if that was the case right and if I know that the treatment recommendations are going to be huge and maybe um overly dramatic because there's not a huge spectrum of care there's only care for people who are very very sick with this disease quote unquote mm. and it's really tough I think it creates a lot of issues and and I know you talked about kind of issues with access to care as well and that having a whole another slew of kind of components. Would you mind kind of digging into that a little bit? Yeah. About access to care. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, in a way um, it all goes back to, it goes back as far as you want to trace it, but it all goes back especially to the 1920s when the American medical establishment basically abdicated its responsibility to take care of people with addiction. Uh, it was a really, mm -hmm powerful inflection point in American history where there is a lot of fear about immigrants on the East Coast and the West Coast, you know, Chinese and European immigrants, and also um, black people after um, Reconstruction. Uh, 
in the context of all of that, there was a lot of fear about opioids and cocaine. Um, mm -hmm. And we were starting to learn, we again, as the medical, the medical profession was starting to learn about how to use opioids to help people with addiction problems. And there were some really sketchy and shady physicians who were th those uh, eras versions of pill mills where you just come in with cash and they'll they'll hand you like a, a bag full of morphine. But there were also physicians who yeah. were really, uh, really thoughtful and really responsible and tried to put people on careful regulated doses of opioids and then slowly wean them down or maybe just maintain them at a low and safe dose so they wouldn't overdose. Um, so anyway, the, the government passed a lot of regulations, which we can get into. But the upshot was the, med the medical profession was faced with a, a question, which was, do we accept addiction as part of our responsibility to help with? Or do we just say that's bad behavior? And they went the other way. They went the other way and said that, uh, you know, addiction's a vice. It's not our job. And so what that resulted in was like through the 1950s and 60s, a lot of hospitals didn't even admit people who had uh alcohol problems which is a big problem because alcohol withdrawal can be deadly uh and even to this day mm -hmm. we have these totally segregated systems of care like we were talking about earlier so you know, one of the main things that we need to do to improve access is um not just to build more of our existing treatment infrastructure but also to mainstream care and provide better integrated care so that somebody who goes to a general medical clinic or goes to a general practitioner can also get uh, help with that um that's the answer to one of your earlier questions too about like yeah. how do we address people with mild and moderate problems like you know that you don't always need to go to a therapist for that it would be fantastic if more mm -hmm. internists and general practitioners or hey you know like religious and faith leaders or other people who are in these sort of like quasi-therapeutic roles um were better educated and able to help people with um yeah. with those types of problems so um i don't know access runs really deep uh, there's a lot that we that we need to do, um, but I guess the point that I really want to emphasize is it's not just about like funding, and it's not just about like building more of what uh, of what we already know. It's also about consciousness changing about what does it mean to take care of people with substance use problems. I really appreciate that. Um, you know, one of, one of the biggest you know, and you mentioned it a minute ago, but one of the biggest. Um, takeaways I got from your book was the humility part and how we're just so at the infancy stage of being able to deal with this. I, I had a conversation, one of my best friends is a psychiatrist I was talking to, getting some supervision from him yesterday, and I was dealing with a very complicated case involving an entire family system, and I was like, dude, this is like trying to do neurosurgery on five people without any anesthesia it's like they're laying on the table mm -hmm. like, sh like shaking their head around it's such a complex issue and i think you know you did a great job in the book pointing out that you know it's so much more than a medical problem and how social determinants of health have such a bigger role in this whole addiction epidemic that we're going through as a society right now do you have any you know, kind of wisdom that you can share with us and our listeners about, you know, prevention. Yeah, I think about this all the time because I have a six-year-old and both my parents, like I mentioned, were uh, alcoholics. And, you know, I write in the book that there's a way that we can overemphasize genetic causes of addiction. And at the same time, it, it, genetics do have some contribution. So I know my son has some 
germ of that in there. And so I wonder about how to keep him safe. And just generally, you can look at the broader rates of mental health problems in youth and see that we're having big problems right now. There's just a New Yorker article yeah. about this, uh, the crisis of teen suicides. I think it was Andrew Solomon who wrote it. Uh, it was really fantastic and pointing towards something that's really important and that um, uh, college mental health providers have seen for a while now, just the rates of college level anxiety and depression and suicidal thinking has just been steadily increasing, increasing, increasing. It's such a big and complicated topic and people have written whole books about it. So I guess just one piece of it that I would want to emphasize is that it is more than medicine. It's not just about like finding the right, I don't know, psychotherapy. It's not just about finding like the right speaker to come give a presentation to your high school or to your college class, uh, that it really is about the whole person. Humanistic perspective is about what a person's life looks like, what their society looks like, what their society values. Uh, you know, certainly part of the youth mental health crisis writ large, including but not limited to addiction, has to do with a culture of uh, scarcity and achievement. You know, the sort of arms race of people trying to get into colleges against the backdrop of fear and uncertainty and inequality and climate change and an uncertain future and deeply divided politics and increasing ideology you know that's what i hear from my younger patients at least yeah, i'm sure yeah, you hear stuff like that too yeah. you know and so mm-hmm. part of it is that existential question about how to be yeah. a person in the world uh so i don't know that there's like some magic bullet that helps us to like prevent addiction without addressing those other things yeah there's no there's no like keynote presentation that's going to, I think that stuff is great. I, I really support, I want to say, like, because somebody might hear me as sort of like knocking <laughs> yeah. it. Like, I think it's really great to raise the, the disclaimer. I, I, I think it's really great to raise the profile of thinking about addiction and to like have people come in and give nuanced presentations and to um, make it less of a taboo subject and to just provide some healthy psychoeducation. So all that stuff is good. But like when we when we include it under the umbrella of prevention, sometimes there's this notion that like, okay, like we'll do our hour presentation and then people won't use opioids. And it's just it's just so much more complicated than that. Like we have to take care of our communities. We have to take care of our young ones. We have to take care of our civil society and like the way we find meaning and purpose in the world or otherwise, you know, of course, there's going to be problems with addiction and otherwise. I love that. And that's definitely the approach that I kind of take. And that's my philosophy on it, too. It's not a substance issue. It's more of a. You know, why, why do we have an entire you know, generation of people that are trying to anesthetize themselves or check out? And, and like you said, like you're hearing from your patients, I hear it from my guys all the time that I work with. It's like, dude, this world is so effed up. Like, why would I want to have mm-hmm. anything to do with this? Like, the future looks like shit because the world looks like shit. You know, I might as well get high. Mm-hmm. It's, yeah. a, it's a tough, tough problem to deal with. Um, right. I, I think the mistake that people get into, which the history can actually educate us on, is the um, is the feeling that like this world is uniquely shitty, yeah. that somehow <laughs> uh, we're doomed in some sort of special and unique way, and that actually is an element of selfishness, or at least of because um, I feel that in myself. Like just speaking for myself, and actually one of my very first episodes of my own podcast, I uh, I had this great Buddhist teacher Kevin Griffin, who came on, and he's written about despair. And yeah. he's a person in recovery, and he's written about recovery and Buddhism. And um, it was sort of like early days, 
there's a lot of anti-vax stuff. There was a lot of like really intense political divisions. And I'm, I asked him like, how do you deal with despair? It's such a difficult time. And he said, you know, it's actually, it's a little arrogant. He was speaking pretty directly to me because I don't always say, it's a little <laughs> arrogant to think that this is uniquely, <laughs> uniquely difficult time. I mean, it's not World War II. Uh, there, yeah. you know, yeah. right now there is a war in Ukraine. It's awful. Um, but in some ways, our grandparents, m- under certain circumstances, might have had it worse. So, um, putting in a proper perspective and finding a way, however you relate to spirituality, whether it's like a secular spirituality or some other sort of higher purpose, like finding a way of finding meaning and purpose and shining your light on your own little corner of the world, despite whatever problems and suffering there are. I think that's part of recovery too. And it's not necessarily yeah. a medical thing. It might come up in psychotherapy or counseling, um, but it's ultimately a humanistic mm-hmm. and again, like broadly writ a spiritual set of questions. Yeah. That's kind of my answer to it. Your book addresses that too. Like your, your book really brings that around too of like, Hey, this is like cyclical. Like this is not new guys. <laughs> like, this has been happening in many different flavors for a very, very long time. And I want to go back to one thing because I'm personally, I'm more of the gray area drinker. I'm not in recovery. I've spent years away from alcohol. I've spent uh, college years drinking too much. Like I've kind of done the, the different areas of the spectrum and, and now I can kind of go, I don't know, four or five months without having a drink and not necessarily intentionally just do I want one tonight. And usually the answer is no. And when you said, you know, kind of with your concept of everyone really having some degree of addiction and this being more of a human self-control issue, can you spin that for our listeners in a way that feels really empowering? Because I'm making up that that could sound really scary to a lot of people of like, so it's only a matter of me triggering this thing. Maybe that's my own anxiety, right? But just curious, like how can you kind of spin that even for the adolescent kind of topic for a gray area drinkers if if I have addiction how can I yeah what do I do with that better not have a drink tonight Sam (laughs) (laughs) yeah I think that I'll um, just drink over it yeah like you say or like you're I think you're kind of alluding to toward the end of the book I basically say we'll never see the end of addiction yeah. That the notion that we can stamp it mm-hmm. out at the social level is misleading and the notion that at the individual level we can somehow conquer it or graduate from it is misleading and that it's in everyone. Um, but I think that's a hopeful message. And I actually found it very hopeful when I found yeah. examples of people struggling with addiction going back to like 1000 BC. Uh, because I think it puts the, p- the problem into perspective. It shows that it's a deeply human problem. And over and over and over again throughout history, people have still found ways to grow and to change and to minimize harm and to support their communities. Uh, and that goes hand in hand with a, a piece of wisdom that's common in um, it's common in recovery communities. It's common in modern psychotherapies like acceptance and commitment therapy, one of the ones I love, that Thank acceptance you. is the answer to a lot of our problems. That if, mm-hmm. we, if we live in a fantasy world where we think like, oh, I'm normal, I don't have this problem, uh, then we have no ground to stand on. But if you can accept that everyone has some germ of some problem of self-control, that everyone has a struggle, it's a deeply human and very normal struggle, um, that's the thing that frees us up to look at all the varieties of flourishing and change that are available to us. Uh, So, yeah, I think it could be a misunderstanding that saying addiction is in all of us is some sort of problem. I don't think it's a problem. I just think it's a description. It's just it's where we are. It's like saying we have yeah. 
like most of us have um, 10 fingers, 10 toes. Yeah, and, you, and even if you right. take it back like one step and, you know, and this is from more of a Buddhist perspective, but yeah, I mean, just I- I acknowledging that there's suffering and that mm-hmm. that everybody suffers to some extent and addiction could be a way to attempt to ameliorate that. Yeah. I'm curious, like for, for our listeners out there who are trying to cut back or remove alcohol from their lives, change their relationship with alcohol, what are kind of your top... Give us your, your top tips. Yeah, it's tough. I think it's um it's so individualistic and um you know, sometimes it's about surrender and acceptance. It was for me as a relatively like arrogant and entitled upper middle class white guy from the northeast, but for others that might not always be the answer. <laughs> you know, so um I hesitate to give like generalized recommendations, but I will say that you know, just like going off of the last answer, um that Acceptance and working with the pain is always uh, mm-hmm. a key foundation uh, that um, there's a lot of power in acceptance. There's a lot of power in finding other mm-hmm. sources of help. Uh, that pain is not a problem. I think a big problem with American society is this notion that pain is a problem, that suffering yeah. is a problem, that we should right. be happy, that we should be free from anxiety, uh, this sort of like Instagram vision of life. Uh, and... Mm-hmm if we can find ways of accepting and living with and coexisting with and working with uh, our forms of our pain and suffering, then that that's the thing that gives us a lot of opportunities to, to change. In other words, like addiction is often like, like what we were just saying, addiction is often a problem of how we work with our pain. Yeah. And if that's the case, the answer is not how do we eradicate pain, but how do we find a healthier, more meaningful more wholesome, uh, uh, more connected, more harmonious way of working with whatever our, our quotient of pain is. I love that. Usually we try to wrap on a little bit of a vulnerable note, if you're willing. And usually what we ask our guests, you know, to wrap up with is just sure. sharing with us the what are like three benefits of having removed alcohol from your life at this point? Oh my God. I could give you 30. <laughs> um, <laughs> the big three. Yeah. The big three. I mean, the big three is that I got to um, work as a physician. I got to continue working as a physician, which is not a right. It's a privilege and it's a privilege. I almost lost. I was on the verge of losing and I almost threw it all away when I first entered treatment and then later when I was going through treatment, just because of my own ideas about who I should be and what I should be able to do. Um, so that's a huge one. I, I think right-sizing myself and finding a spiritual community is another huge one. We didn't talk too much about that aspect of spirituality, but even well before I got sober, I was, I was really committed to Zen Buddhism and I had gone to Korea for a year and I had practiced in a temple and gone on a three week silent meditation retreats and was really, 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 really trying. Um, part of that was me trying to sort of like meditate my alcohol <laughs> problems away, which also doesn't work. Sure. Um, but one of the gifts of sobriety for me was that, you know, I was finally able to like wake up in the morning and go to the Zen center. And that the, we were talking earlier about that question, like now what do I do with my life? I was left with that question in early recovery. What do I do? And then I actually did connect with a Brooklyn-based Zen Center um, that really gave me a sense of um, connection and 
uh, a sort of spiritual identity and meaning and purpose that was absolutely essential, not just to my recovery, but to my life. Um, and then what's a third one? Jeez, I don't know. It's uh, maybe just, um, I, I, uh, there's such a focus on like moving forward and like the next big thing and like happiness and the positive sides of things. We just talked about that. So maybe I'll just say like, sometimes we miss out just the very simple benefit of stopping the negatives. Um, I, there's just so many ways I was causing harm, like potentially causing harm. So many ways I had um, screwed up relationships with women um, and I wasn't sort of fulfilling my responsibilities at work and with friendships and uh, just by stopping drinking, just by stopping that level of harm, even though sometimes it felt sort of aimless and uh, tricky in early recovery. I mean, that's just such a, I'm grateful for that. Um, mm -hmm. And I, I, you know, I think most people can, can feel a taste of that too. It's just, it's almost like being able to see if you're not blind, you know, like most of us don't appreciate that we have vision, but like, if you can, <laughs> if you can pause for a second, geez, what a miracle it is that we can, you know, what a miracle that I'm not, um, drunk driving anymore what a miracle that every time I get behind the wheel I'm not potentially killing myself yeah. and other people thank you so much for sharing that yeah thanks for having me these are great questions yeah really appreciate you coming on and I, I can't express my gratitude enough for you you know dedicating the time and effort that you did to write this book and share yourself with us today especially and uh we got we got any other books uh coming down the pipeline can we uh can we expect an urge to coming out anytime soon are you working on any projects or anything where's your next kind of target of focus well yeah i'll say i'll put in the little plug that like one thing that i'm doing is i've got that podcast i've mentioned uh and so that's that's been a real fun gift of the book uh to do interviews with experts and people in recovery and other folks to talk about flourishing and recovery yeah what's it called how can people find you it's called flourishing after addiction and the best place to find me is on my website, just carlericfisher.com. But also, you know, if you're, you know, you're listening to this on a podcast, you can just punch into your podcast player, Flourishing After Addiction with Carl Eric Fisher. It should come up. Nice. Um, and that's, you know, that's been a way of like testing out different ideas and continuing to learn and almost like picking up on questions that were still alive for me at the end of the book. Um, yeah. I'm also I'm working on um, Portuguese drug policy right now. I'm really interested in decriminalization nice. and um, Me too. the sort of like broader <laughs> historical and cultural elements of decriminalization because sometimes it gets talked about as like this very narrow thing. Like it's just a little technocratic tweak like, oh, let's just decriminalize drugs and then everything will be cool. But, um, you know, like so the, simple. Por the Portuguese example is that they did a lot of other extra stuff. And like, I mean, we could do a whole other podcast on that, but, um, no, no book yeah. yet. I think I'm going to do some of these smaller things. Cause the book was a real mo I mean, it's a short book. It's very readable yeah, and yeah. enjoyable, but it took me 10 years to, to write. And, um, I'm not, I'm a little hesitant to jump into something huge, huge, huge <laughs> today. So, um, I'm doing some of these smaller scale things and, testing out different stuff and just talking it like, like we're doing today, like talking to people and getting a sense of what's really alive for people and what's a useful thing to do. And, um, just kicking ideas around. Well, I appreciate your courage and, um, and discipline to tackle this type of stuff, man. We need more, more people out there like you that are willing to have these conversations and do this type of work and ask these types of questions. So 
Love to have you back sometime, man. Really appreciate you being here. That'd be great. Yeah. And thank you for your thoughtful questions and all your kind words. It was really nice. Thanks for, uh, thanks for the work you do with your podcast. It's good to meet you all. Thank you. Thanks for being on. The information and opinions shared on this podcast are solely those of the hosts and guests and are not a substitute for medical advice. If you feel like you may need professional help, here are some resources. For the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration hotline, call 1-800-662-4357 or visit smsa.gov. For listeners in the Charlotte, North Carolina community, visit dilworthcenter.org or call 704-372-6969 or visit theblanchardinstitute.com or call 704-288-1097.